0: The title of this morning's message is Getting the Point of Worship. It is Christmas season, and if you're like me, you love this time of year. Most of us do. And one of the conversations that I have heard and participated in many, many years is the conversation about not missing the point of Christmas and how easy it is and all the hustle and bustle and all the distractions to miss the the main point, the heart of it, the essence of it. And I remember years ago, I was watching the news, and there was a really vivid illustration of missing the point. There was a a news segment about the shopping season, and the economy was humming along, and so there was a segment, and it just featured different stores and how they were doing, and you could see all the people milling around and buying things. And At one point, the news representative there was interviewing people, and talking to him about you know what they were looking forward to, what they enjoyed the most about Christmas, and asking them what was in their cart or their bags. Well, well, this one young guy walks up with this cart filled I mean, just overflowing with stuff. I think he was at Best Buy or something. so all his electronics, expensive TVs and other things in his cart, just all over the, just you know, overflowing. And so this, uh, this reporter asked him, "Wow, look, this is amazing. Who are all these gifts for?" And he said, I, I kid you not, he said, they're for me. <laughs> like, dude, you missed the point. This, this holiday is about giving, not taking. You missed the point. Well, we are in a section of John's Gospel where Jesus, ironically, is, is confronting the most serious religious people, the ones most dedicated to the temple, the holy place, the holy activities, they were missing the point. And so we see in this section, and Dave read from it earlier, this is that well-known story where Jesus cleanses the temple. He goes in, and, and this is arguably the most aggressive moment of Jesus' earthly life we see here in John chapter 2. And it's because they, they missed the point. And so we're going to talk about the point of worship this morning. Begin in verse 12. We're going to talk a little bit about the setting. It says after this, and that's after the the wedding of Cana that we studied last week. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days. And that is up in the northern area near the Sea of Galilee. Well, then in verse 13 it says that the, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It was, it was upward in terms of topography, but it was south in terms of where it was located. Uh, but it says the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So it's this Passover season, kind of like our Christmas season, one of the preeminent holidays for the Jewish people, where there were many days people would come in from all over the Roman Empire. They would come into Jerusalem to congregate, to meet, to celebrate, to commemorate God's deliverance through Moses centuries ago when he delivered them from Egyptian slavery. So it was Passover, and you remember, of course, Passover refers to there's all those plagues where God miraculously delivered them, and the final plague was was the uh, firstborn of the household would be killed if not for the blood that was over the doorposts of the Jewish people. And so that was the Passover where God passed over and spared people. Well, at any rate, this was their opportunity to celebrate the Passover, to remember God and His grace to them, His provisions for them, and how He had set them free in a way that only He could do. So there are many, many people there in Jerusalem for this holiday season. But, many of them were missing the point. Many of them were missing the point. Especially, and most egregiously, the religious authorities and religious leaders. And so, it says in verse 14, And he is Jesus, found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, And the money changers seated at their tables. So he goes into the temple and there he finds these merchants, basically people selling animals. And you might say, that sounds really strange. Why would they be doing that? Well, they would sacrifice animals. And so this was a matter of convenience for them where these people were coming from all over. So they would get your animals right here and they basically set up shop. It's like a business. And so they're charging people for these animals that they would use for sacrifices and then there were money changers because there was a tax that was to be collected and there was certain coinage that was required for the tax. And so there were money changers there that were kind of like doing the exchange rate thing and they would exact these fees from the people. So the people were being, to use a kind of an old word, bilked. They were, they were, being, they were being exploited for this money. They're in the temple, the holy place, during this holy season, this holiday season. The, the temple which was originally designed, of course it goes back to King David and his, his idea where he was sitting and observing his household and said, where is the house for God? He says, we're going to build this house for God. And it was intended to be, if you go back to 2 Samuel, we won't do that now, but if you were to go back there and read about it, you would see that uh, it says there that, that this is going to be a place for God's name. And you may know that When we speak of God's name, we're speaking not just of his name, Yahweh, or the other names of God, but the concept of the name of God has to do with God's very character, God's very reputation. So this house, this temple, this building was to represent, to honor God's name and to represent God's name, to be consistent with God's character. And here we have these people who are just running a business. Doing what people by nature are so often doing. What is natural for us to do, which is this. Essentially, it's this. It's to, it's to give in order to get. It's to provide a good or a service for what I get out of it in return. You follow? This is like basic economics. This is what makes the world go round. This is natural And they had taken this holy place, this place that was to be other, distinct, and made it just like every other place, because here they were, a bunch of people, including the religious people, including the people who should have known better, here they were, and what they were doing was just exchanging goods and services and money going back and forth, and you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. That was what was going on, and there was something very wrong with this, something in need of correction. You think of Jesus' life and ministry. Those of you who have read your Bibles a great deal, if, if I were to ask you in another context, hey, what are some of the most memorable parts of Jesus' earthly life? You'd probably tell me about him healing blind people and lepers and Sermon on the Mount, his great messages he shared with people. And you might talk about even uh, the way he would maybe confront the Pharisees or things like that or, or his final week and what he endured in his final week, but this this occurrence of the cleansing of the temple, this is, this is shocking because it's it's the most aggressive we really see Jesus in a way. Well what you might ask the question well what um I mean what would bring him to this? Why why this type of reaction? It's because there was something so egregious going on here. They had so severely missed the point of worship and so he comes in to, uh, as it were, to clean, to clean house. So it says in verse 15, he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So you can imagine the chaos as he just has this whip and he's driving out all these animals and all these merchants and the money changers. He flips the tables over and coins are going all over the place. I mean, it's chaos in there. He was the son of God, the meek shepherd, showing this tenacity in this, in this moment. Well, why? Again, what would bring him to this? I want, you, I want to turn you over to Matthew's Gospel. So turn back to Matthew chapter 21. This is fascinating. In Matthew 21, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus did the same thing. So a few years later, he does the same thing. He goes to the temple again, which highlights the importance of this, the necessity for this cleansing that's taking place. So Matthew 21, this is toward the end of his ministry, toward the end of his life. Look at verses 12 through 16 there. Just get another detail or two in this parallel passage. John 2 is the beginning of his life, and or sorry, beginning of his ministry. This is the end of his ministry. Verse 12 says, And Jesus entered the temple, drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you are making it, A robber's den. See how he describes it there? He calls it not just a business like we see in John 2, but here he says you're making it a robber's den. You're literally stealing from people. You're taking from people. This is to be a house of prayer, a house in which people come and freely commune with God and celebrate God and worship God. And it begs the question, well, like, well, worship God why or how? And this is the type of thing that we think about in a passage like this. And we're going to get to that more later. But for now, let me just raise the question. We're like, worship God why and worship God how? Well, Jesus is getting to that. He's getting to that in this confrontation. But notice one more thing in the text here in Matthew 21. Notice that it says in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. So here come the, the the needy. Here come the people associated with not just material poverty and physical disability. But these would be the people considered the worst of the worst. The least of the least. It's not as natural for us today to think this way. But in those days, they associated this type of affliction, this type of disability, this type of poverty, this low social level, they attributed that to moral evil, to unrighteousness, to sin, as if these people were worse sinners than the religious folks. And so these were the least of the least, and here Jesus is in the temple, in the holy place, ministering to them, tending to them, healing them. And some were offended deeply by this, and others were Greatly encouraged by this. And it says there in verse 15 the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. The children were shouting in the temple. So here are the children. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And but when they did that, the chief priests and scribes, it says, became indignant. They were angry. He's defiling the temple. In their view, he's, he's defiling the temple. This place that's meant to be a place of purity and external kind of morality and external religion. He's defiling it by the way that he's mercifully ministering to these lowly people, to these sinners. It's interesting. Back to John chapter 2. Let's look a little, bit, a little here at his uh, motivation. So, so if the the action is to drive them out to confront them with the strong words of verse 16 now in verse 17 he speaks or it speaks of his motivation which his disciples disciples remembered later where it says his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me this goes back to the psalms but This is the idea of what is going on in Jesus' heart and his mind. What drives him to this is zeal. And that word is the same word for jealousy. He's, He's jealous for the name or the reputation or the honor of his father. He's jealous that they would get and not miss the point of this holiday, of this worship. It was zeal for his father's house. When you think back to the Passover and what that represents, I said a little bit about it earlier But this idea of the covering, the blood covering the people who were spared, and then the deliverance that came where God's people were taken out of, and if you read and study Exodus, you'll see this terminology, out of the house of slavery. There's a certain kind of house. The word house is often used of the temple. Well, in terms of Egypt, it was the house of slavery. And it says that God brought them out of the house of slavery to, as it were, his household, his house, which is not a house of slavery. Out of the bondage of being under Pharaoh, the slave master, into the freedom and the joy of being in the household of God, the Father. This is what Passover represents, this great liberation of God's people. And it says here that zeal was consuming Jesus. This is what's interesting. Here's an interesting way to put it, okay? Jesus knew better than anyone what the temple was really all about. He'll say more about that in a moment concerning his own body. But he knew more than anyone what that building was really supposed to be all about. And it says here that he was consumed with this zeal. And the irony is he knew that that building really should not have been. If it were to be consistent with God's character, with God's heart, it should not have been about human consumption. We humans, follow me here, are consumers, right? Again, let's talk economics for a minute. We're all consumers. We need to take from outside of ourselves to subsist, to to. to Maintain our livelihoods. We have to take. So we have to exchange. We have to barter. We have to trade. We have to buy. We have to purchase. And so we consume that which is outside of us to continue on. We need to take in order to survive. There's a sense in which we're, by nature, as human beings, we are, we, we, it's just the way it has to be. And then the worst of that is is in our flesh, in our sinfulness, the greed and the pride. We make everything about what we can get out of everything. Not just material things, not just food, not just things like clothing, but also relations. Like we just need from others. We like extract. So there's this constant consumerism going on in in our human relations. There's this constant consumption. And ironically here, we could use the term, and literally in the original language, it has to do with like eating up, okay? So th- th- like what's eating Jesus up inside is the fact that they took the holy place, the place that was to represent God's grace and provisions, and made a place of human taking and transactions. Do you follow that? That's what's happening here. That's why he says that you turn it into a place of business. That's why he says in Matthew 21, you turn it into a robber's den. You, you made this a place about taking. Now let me blow your mind for a minute, okay? You say, wait, I mean, you can kind of sympathize with the merchants a little bit in that, hey, they got to have these sacrifices. That's something that was prescribed in the Old Testament. So they needed sacrifices. We're just sort of making it more convenient so they don't have to bring these animals from so far. So we're just offering a good service, making it easier for them. Yeah, we're making a little money here and there, but, you know, it's making it easy for everybody. And after all, God, you require the sacrifice. Let me ask you a question What's the greatest sacrifice or Another way, who is the greatest sacrifice? Who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? He's standing right there. He's right there. He's the sacrifice. He's the provision. He's the evidence, the tangible evidence of God being a giver, not a taker. And Jesus says, you've, you religious leaders of all the people who should know better studied this book inside and out in their Old Testament. And he said, you've turned it into a place of taking. That's human. That's normal. This place is to be holy, different, other. God's way is other. So zeal was consuming him. That's what motivated him. Again, we won't turn back there, but if you look at the history of the temple, it's really interesting. It was really David's idea as he looks at his house. I mentioned this earlier, but he looks all around at everything he has in a moment of peace there. He looks at everything he has and says, well, I need to make a house for God because there had have been the tabernacle, the temporary tent that God was dwelling with his people in throughout Israel's history. And he says, well, let's just make him a house. Let's make him a permanent dwelling And if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, God there says, you know, I never asked you for a house. I didn't ask you for anything. But if you're going to make one, uh, it's not going to be you, it's going to be your son Solomon. He'll build the house, and Solomon will go on, of course, to build the temple. And God does endorse it, and God does give specifics and instructions regarding it. But it really seems though it wasn't his idea originally, in in a very real sense. He says, go ahead and build it, and I'll give you the instructions for it. And and from that point on, you see this interesting phenomenon. That first temple, when it was built under Solomon, was torn down. As the enemy nations, Israel constantly, that was torn. So the temple in Jesus' time was not actually that original temple. It was the second temple. Because one was torn down, then they built up another one. And now, there's going to be a little bit more talk about the tearing down of the physical structure. So let's, let's continue here. Verse 18, the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Like, who do you think you are? Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now that was confusing because it's like, well, why would they destroy this is their temple? Why would they destroy it? But he's, it's in normal, his normal way. He speaks to conceal things from the arrogant and to reveal things to the humble. And he, so he speaks almost in riddles in a way. But he said, go ahead, if you to destroy this temple, uh, I will raise it up. And they're thinking to themselves, and here's their logic, verse 20, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? Look at verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. He says there's a there's a real temple that you're missing. With all your emphasis on and preoccupation with this physical building and these physical activities and these rituals and these traditions and all that stuff, you're missing the whole point. We had a light bulb moment earlier of the sacrifice the lamb is standing right there, the one to whom all those animals that were insufficient The one to whom all those pointed. He's right there. And not only is he right there as the sacrifice embodied, he's right there as the temple embodied. The place of man dwelling with God. The place of man communing with God. So it says he was speaking of the temple of his body in verse 22. When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. His wisdom blew their minds. Wow, he was talking about himself and the fact that they would destroy him. They would destroy the temple. They would destroy him. And in three days, God the Father would raise him from the dead. He is the true and greater temple is what this is talking about. I want to show you one more thing about this in Acts chapter 7. Turn to Acts 7. So Jesus has ascended. This is now his apostles out there ministering. And in Acts 7, we have... Stephen preaching to the religious leaders, to the, the Jewish religious leaders, and something really interesting he says. And, and just to give you a little of the context, they're sort of hostile toward him as he's preaching. And you may remember he's, he ends up being martyred, he ends up being put to death because of how he infuriated the religious people. At any rate, he, he's, he's preaching this sermon and they're accusing him of denying Moses. Or distorting the teachings of Moses and dishonoring the law and dishonoring the holy place, Jerusalem and the temple. That's what they accuse Stephen of. And look what Stephen says. He, he gives this whole history of Israel in summary form and keeps showing how it all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And then he gets to verse 44 and he says this. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen, and having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. This is what we talked about earlier in terms of David wanting to build a house for him. And then verse 47 says, But it was Solomon who built a house for him, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. In other words, God doesn't need your house. Verse 49, and this is a quote of Isaiah 66 Heaven is my throne. The earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just like your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. The sacrifice was there, and you killed them. The temple was there, and you killed them. The righteous one was there; he told you it wasn't you, and you killed them. Think about that. I mean, this is something especially for us who are part of the church and the religious crowd for us to think about it really is undressing all people not just the the the, uh, religious it's everybody it's like he presents himself as everything we need to have relationship with our creator and the basis of it all is the generosity and grace of god And we so easily and so frequently miss it and lose sight of it and turn it into so many other things and so many other human, normal, transactional, conditional things. Consumeristic things. Competitive things. Jesus is the true and greatest temple. The place where we dwell with God. Where we are assured that we are reconciled to God through everything he's provided. They were at home with God. He is at home with us. We are His children. He is our Father that we are accepted. We are beloved in Christ. Everything is taken care of. Everything is paid for. How does it work in our economy? You get what you pay for. Am I right? In God's economy, you get what Christ paid for. You get what He paid for. He paid it all. He did it all. Christmas because there's a parallel here for all its distractions is still a great time to focus on the giving heart of God and how we in our relationships with one another in a sense mirror the heart of God with each other in giving things freely to each other so here's the question i want us to ponder as we begin to bring this to a close okay is god like us meaning this is god A consumer. Is God a consumer? Here's another way to put it. And and think carefully about this. What does God want from you? Don't answer, just think for a moment. What does God want from you? Does God want anything from you? Well, Well, maybe in a sense, but I think in the deepest and truest sense, what are you going to give to the guy who has everything? You know that expression we use around Christmas time? Like, what do you buy for the guy who has everything? What are you going to give to the God who has everything? If God did want something from you or from me, like, what could we even give him? Just, just for starters, just, like, just, just in terms of the, the essence of things, like, what, what, do I, what, what do I have to offer the God overall? Like the God who made everything and upholds everything every moment by the word of his power. That God. What, what do I have? What do you have to like give to him? So he oh, you going to make me a house? Oh, that's cute. Okay, make me a house. But do I dwell in a house made with human hands? The earth is my footstool. It's like my, it's like my ottoman. Just like it's nothing to me. There's places where the Bible talks about people as like grasshoppers. You ever take off in a plane, you look down, you see little people milling around like little ants. Like, what are you going to give to me? What? What is God, does he, is he want, is he demanding, is he exacting, is he, is he here to take from you? Look, there's a ton of religions out there and there's a ton of even Christian religious stuff out there that would send the message, God's here to take from you. You better do this, you better do that. You better. Jesus was there as the one representing most clearly in vivid, living color God gives you everything. So we ask the question, what does God want from you? Is God a consumer? The answer is no, God is not a consumer. And I know you're thinking, well, there's something God wants for us. Yeah, we'll get to that in just a second. But let me ask this question. What does God want for you? Like, what is this zeal of Jesus all about? What is this jealousy of Jesus all about? Look, if he doesn't need, he didn't need to do what he did. He didn't need to come to this place. He didn't need to subject himself to human, really, torture. From the moment of his birth to the end of his life, just the constant sin and rebellion and hostility and rejection. And I mean, he didn't need to do that in a, in a very real sense. But his heart compels him to do it. His love compels him to do it. His jealousy for his people to know their God. This is what God wants for us. He wants us to see him as he is. He wants us to see him as holy... Which doesn't just mean that he's way up there. And it doesn't just mean that he's better at keeping the rules than we are. It means that he's completely and entirely different than we are by nature. Namely, in this sense, he is a giver, 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 giver. We are wanting, wanting, taking, 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 taking. We even cloak that sometimes in religious externals. But we're still just wanting, taking from our spouse, from other people, from people in the church. Just... And he is just other and different, and his temple and the realest, the truest temple in dwelling with him is just a different kind of dwelling. It's a dwelling of grace and receiving, and in Christ, unconditional love and acceptance. And he loves when the sacrifice that comes out of us, as it says in Hebrews, is the sacrifice of praise that give thanks to his name and what does that tell you it tells you that we are giving thanks for that, that which we have received it still goes back to what has come to we just, i think one of the songs this morning talked about that it's the idea of everything we have even the harvest of fruit in our lives it all comes from you god you're the one who has life you're the one who has love you're the one who has everything And the people in the temple in Matthew 21 who came, the the weakest and the lame and the disabled and the rejects and the obvious sinners, they just sort of like, they're the ones that came and said, I got nothing to offer you. And Jesus says, healing, provision. It's awesome. So as we think about Christmas season and the giving of the season, which is the point, even though we can so frequently miss it. It's a good opportunity for us to reflect on this generous, giving heart of our Father who wants for us to know Him, to be in relationship with Him through Christ, and offers that to us, to be receivers, to be beneficiaries. And that is the cause of worship. That is the point of worship, and that's what creates worship. You say, wow, God, you're amazing. That you're that kind and that merciful to me. Just a beggar. With nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you that this place, that these opportunities are like, thank you that they're not like, that they're different from everything else. I mean, if we want a place for transactions and ladder climbing and merit and conditions and, I mean, just go anywhere else. Anywhere. Go to a bowling club, join one of those or join the military or a corporation or, I mean, go basically anywhere else. This is a place for us to receive from our Creator and to say, wow, it's all from you. We're receiving undeserved grace. So whether it's collectively as we reflect on it, or even individually, we're so frequently in our lives, even in our conflict with our loved ones, so frequently it's about well they're not doing X, Y, or Z for me, and we feel like we need something from them, and we're doing our part, and they're not doing their part. I'm scratching their back, but they're not scratching my back, and and all, like opportunities to remember, to reflect on the stuff from which we are made, the fallen condition, and to reflect along with that, to reflect on. God's holiness, His otherness, His love, His resources which are unlimited. His grace. And that's what opens us up to the real cause or reason for worship. And so at the end of the passage it says, when He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered and said, wow, and as they believed the Scripture and the Word which He had spoken, they knew what He had taught them. They saw it finally, fully, and all that he was for them. I hope that God can help us to see and experience all that he is for us today as well. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your otherness when our human ways are so selfish, oriented toward taking. In one sense, our basic survival depends upon it. It's in one sense appropriate, but in another sense, our pride and our Greed so often turns us into consumers of others and taking advantage of others or creating contexts of control or manipulation. Even sometimes in our religious endeavors, we, we can turn it into a, a context of manipulation or control, or exacting from people, or taking from people, or whatever, and and you communicate to us that your heart is overflowing with generosity and grace. You are quick to forgive, to cover, to provide everything necessary for us to know that we belong to you, that we're in your family. And as all of grace, all of mercy, help us to receive, receive your truth. Fill our hearts with gratitude. We might worship you and remember and appraise the greatest value of all, which is your Son given to us. Even as we proceed through the Christmas season, help us to remember your generosity, God, toward us in Christ, which we will spend many days on earth and all of our days in eternity worshiping and celebrating. So thank you for this truth. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.